Hi there, and welcome back to Medicine Unmasked, healing the healers through anonymous storytelling. I'm your host, Dr. Sonia Pimparker. After the release of the very first episode, I was so genuinely moved by the outpouring of comments and reflections that flooded in from all of you. In particular, I received a series of very interesting messages. You might recall that before sharing his biggest regret as a doctor, my first guest chose a pseudonym to protect his patient's identity. And uh, let's say the patient's name was like Joanna. It wasn't Joanna. But she called me and she's like, hey, um, did you hear what happened with Joanna? Since that episode launched, I received countless messages from completely anonymous healthcare workers, doctors, PAs, NPs, even students, telling me about their own Joanna stories, recounting patient experiences where they made a mistake that resulted in a patient having a bad outcome or unexpected result, stories which they had never told anybody else before. It just goes to show that within every healthcare worker resides a Joanna, a memory that lingers, a face that visits us in the silent hours, and makes us ruminate on the could-haves and should-haves. This reminded me of a famous quote by Dr. Rene LaRiche, often described as the father of vascular surgery. Every surgeon carries within himself a small cemetery where from time to time he goes to pray, a place of bitterness and regret where he must look for an explanation for his failures. No matter what your specialty or role in healthcare, we all carry cemeteries within us. And that cemetery often comes with a large burden on anyone's conscience. Carrying that weight alone only amplifies it. And that is precisely why I created Medicine Unmasked. For today's episode, I can't wait for you to meet my guest. She has some stories that I think are going to resonate with a lot of you. I'll let her introduce herself. I'm a neurology resident in my third year, and I'm going to be going into neurocritical care. Imagine this, you're on your phone, mindlessly browsing social media, when all of a sudden, you receive a notification indicating that your battery is critically low. You have a long day ahead of you, and you forgot your charger at home. You need your phone to last. So, you frantically start closing apps, prioritizing only the essentials in a desperate bid to conserve energy. No more social media, games, email, photos, you just can't afford it. You restrict yourself to just the bare necessities to just get through the day. As your day progresses, your grandma FaceTimes you. Are you going to accept that call? What about texting friends to make social plans? Do you really want to waste your battery on that? Your news app flashes an interesting notification. Do you press to learn more? Listen to your favorite song? Connect with the world? At 5% battery? Probably not. Now, let's think about how this translates into the world of medicine. Picture working relentless 80 to 100 hour work weeks, spanning multiple weeks, maybe even months on end. Your life becomes synonymous with low battery mode. Connections to friends, family, self-care, and exercise are the first to go nothing more than casualties of the energy deficit you're dealing with. Simply getting through the day evolves into a strategic balance of energy expenditure, 
where every interaction and task is evaluated against your very limited reserve. This reality hits home for many medical professionals. So just for perspective, it's six days a week, one day off, and those are generally 12 to 14 hour shifts pretty frequently. And I think by the end of the two months of that, you have already lost so much of who you were outside of medicine. You've been just drenched in hospital. You have no extra life outside of the hospital or energy. So I find I'm incredibly apathetic towards anything external to the hospital. So, you know, my apartment, I don't care. I haven't exercised. I haven't slept very well. It feels like I'm just kind of petering out, basically. And I'm like, oh, I can make it till this day. I can make it till this day. I can make it till this day. And I think the apathy that starts to happen earlier on in your external life starts to go into the hospital with you at some point and it switches and you start to say, I'm here to do my job. I don't necessarily have the capacity to really be emotional with this patient about this very real experience. It's not that I'm not sympathizing. It's just that I can't use my very little emotional reserve and bandwidth to like empathize to my full capacity right now in this environment, in this situation. And again, I don't think it necessarily alters my ability to provide care. Maybe the amount of time that I spend with that family in giving a sad diagnosis or in giving a bad prognosis or something, I'm much quicker to say, I will give you this bad news and I'll be really heartfelt with you, but I'm not going to stay here with you while you cry. And so that protection of saying, I have no reserve in my own life, maybe the 1% I have left for myself is not going to be extended to the 15th patient I've seen that day where I'm telling something bad to. Mm. I just don't have that ability. I will do the best I can in that moment. And I will tell you sympathy. I will feel sorry. I will make it known that I'm, you know, apologetic that you're going through this and that I wish things were different. And I wish I wasn't telling you this bad news, but I'm not going to sit there and be consumed by your own grief or partake in your own grief because I can't process it with the 1% I have left. Mm. Welcome to the world of the Neuro ICU, a specialized medical unit providing intensive care and monitoring for patients facing life-threatening neurological emergencies and disorders. From traumatic brain injuries to brain tumors and seizures, this unit requires specialized equipment and expertise to care for critical neurological patients. While caring for some of the sickest patients in the hospital, healthcare workers in the neuro ICU often find themselves facing the daunting task of delivering bad news to patients or their families. From devastating diagnoses to difficult treatment outcomes, these moments can be emotionally overwhelming even for the most experienced doctor or nurse. The responsibility of conveying such distressing information can take a toll, testing resilience, compassion, and ability to provide the support needed during these challenging times over and over again. Today, we delve into the emotional journey of healthcare workers as they navigate the heart-wrenching task of delivering bad news in the ICU. 
As we journey deeper into this conversation, I invite you to reflect on the emotional toll that being repeatedly exposed to devastating and critically ill patients can have on a healthcare worker. Maybe this is something that you've personally experienced, or maybe it's something that you can only imagine. Either way, take a moment to contemplate what kinds of coping mechanisms do we employ, both healthy and otherwise, to deal with the stress and emotional weight of this type of work? And how do those coping mechanisms help us to fulfill the responsibilities of our job while also trying to honor our own humanity and needs? And in that vein, let's also ask ourselves, what basic human courtesies do we extend to grieving patients and their families, yet often deny ourselves in the name of professionalism and productivity? I think the hard part, especially in the neurocritical care unit, is, you know, this week I saw five catastrophic brain injuries that were you know, high morbidity where you're either withdrawing care or you're having these discussions where family are really debating heavy stuff, quality of life things. And I've had this conversation now six times. This is my sixth time this week. But I think reminding yourself that while you have had this similar, not the same, this similar conversation multiple times, this is the first time this family has ever experienced that. It's the same thing as when people get really casual about saying, you've had a stroke. Some people react very calmly and they say, oh, you know, I would have never guessed or dang, I'm, I'm glad I went to the hospital. And some people are like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Does this mean that I'm going to have more? Does They get really, really emotional about it. And so I think reminding ourselves saying, while this has become very routine to us, this not pitch, but this way of speaking and delivering devastating news to family and patients is very practiced. And I would say very, maybe practiced is the best word. While that has become something that I have a way of delivering this news every time I have to deliver it, very, not routine, but almost a way in a routine, recognizing that family has never heard this routine. This is completely new to them. So I think even though it becomes something where I say, oh, I need to have this conversation again, with this family that's my, you know, number whatever this week saying, I'm just going into it again with what I typically say. It's your spiel. It's your spiel. This is the spiel for how the rest of your life is forever changed. Forever, exactly. And for you, it's... For me, it's a spiel. You're like, number one, I start with this. Number two, I do this. Yeah. I think the most recent one was just, it was so shocking. It was this probably 50 or 6 year old woman who was like pretty otherwise healthy and then had a catastrophic brain injury, a subarachnoid hemorrhage of like a very severe level. And then also global anoxic injury because she'd had a cardiac arrest subsequent to the subarach and she came in without any blood flow to her brain. So it was immediate. I mean, she was brain dead on arrival. So that's the background. But her son was the decision maker. He was young. He was probably 22, something like that. 21, 22. So we went into the family meeting and it turned out there were probably 17 people in the meeting, in the room. Yeah, so already it was like, holy cow. And we're about to tell this family this devastating news. And this family was huge, probably more than 17. I don't think I counted, but I have never been in a family meeting even a third of the size. I mean, it was massive. It was, you know, cousins, best friends who were there. So there's so many people. 
my attending and I were so overwhelmed already walking in. And then everybody introduces themselves, right? So it's, you know, my cousin and their friend or my cousin and their girlfriend or whatever. But the decision maker was the son. So we're talking about what's going on and we give the diagnosis, which is that we had done preliminary brain death testing and it was consistent with brain death. And so we walked into that family meeting, we're telling everybody, and then, you know, everybody's reaction. You imagine 17 people and 17 plus people reacting all differently. Some were sobbing, some were in hysterics, some were, it was just so overwhelming. So immediately when that started happening, we said, hey, let's have family leave. And we looked directly at the son and said, who do you want to be here? And he was like, I want my grandma to be here, the patient's mom. And so everybody kind of filed out and it was gonna be him, his grandma and then his girlfriend. And so they were all staying in the room and then an uncle started saying, I'm staying in the room, I'm not leaving, I'm not leaving. And apparently the uncle had like a horrible relationship with the patient, but was somehow allowed to be there. And so he starts yelling and the son starts freaking out, just sobbing, saying, you don't have anything to do with this, like whatever. So the uncle's yelling, the boy's sobbing. We're like, what just happened? Because it went fairly peacefully until that. Finally, we get the uncle to leave once we stand up and we're like, you need to get out of here. Social work is like grabbing him, getting out. And then we close the door and then we just hear yelling outside the room. So while the son is like processing all of this super heavy information, there's yelling and we're calling security. People are almost getting in a fight. All these family members outside, right outside the room. So we're hearing everything. And he's like, it's my sister. And the uncle's just going crazy. The son's just super worked up, emotional, mad, everything. And then comes to find out his dad had died. So they had gone through this process already. So he was now becoming an orphan at 22. So we're like dealing with this catastrophe, like this terrible diagnosis, this family that's just up in arms, like yelling, had security called multiple times on them, physically had to be removed from the building. And also the son processing the fact that he's now making decisions and we also didn't know that the father had passed away mm -hmm. because he started talking, oh yeah, we donated my dad's organs. Like they were able to, and we're listening like, wait, what? Like we didn't, we weren't even clued in that he had lost his father. And we we're like, oh my gosh, this 22 year old kid is making these huge decisions after seeing his father do that. And it was so emotional. It was, we didn't have any idea what we were walking into. Didn't have a good idea of the family dynamics because it was so sudden. Oftentimes you have a few days to get a feel. Case managers usually warn you about different dynamics. But because this was essentially so sudden and, and because she was essentially brain dead on arrival, things moved much faster. That day was when family was coming in, not you know, two, three days. Both my attendee and I left that meeting and were just exhausted. Just the realization of everything, processing that many different emotions that quickly, that high intensity, you know, doing that. And I think it was like a two o'clock meeting and the rest of your day, you're just kind of in a haze doing what you can, but being like, oh my gosh, the reality of what this kid is going through. You don't even want to think about it. I remember the social worker coming up to me and asked how I was doing. And I said, I'm just not thinking about it. I was like, I'll think about it later. Because I think I have learned and become very good at not letting myself be bothered at that time in the moment. I just don't dwell on it. I very quickly compartmentalize it. And then later, I just crash because I 
become so devastated with the fact that I wasn't able to process it then and there. And it seems so counterintuitive to say, I'll think about this later and to change the way your thoughts are going and say, I don't have time to correctly mourn this and to correctly process it at this time. I will do it later, which is like, what? The interesting thing is that it's not a normal human response, and yet it is it is such a normal thing mm-hmm. that healthcare workers do just to get through their day. Because let's say you actually gave yourself the ability to, like you said, correctly mourn whatever that looks like. What does that mean for the rest of your day, for the next patient that needs you? Yeah, I don't think you can. I mean... You know, I, my attending was sitting next to me and he's obviously done this way more than I have exponentially more at this point than I ever had. And I remember him just kind of being quiet. He got very teary during the interview because she was essentially completely normal walking, talking, you know, five hours before presentation. So, you know, how fast this was and how severe and without any time. And so I think he was very emotional. And I remember looking over at him and he was writing like the death note. I mean, he was just doing it. He just wrote the brain death exam note. And I remember looking over at him and social work, she came to talk to both of us and I was sitting next to him. And I was like, I can't think about this. He's like, yeah, I, I can't either. I'll just, I have other things to do. And it's wild. It's very counterintuitive to human nature. And it makes you feel like you're doing a dishonor to the patient and to the family by not being present, as present as you could be. But it very much is self-preservation. And because you have other patients that require your emotional and intellectual presence that you can't sacrifice for one patient when you have another unit of 20. Mm. You've probably heard of the idea of a sleep deficit before. Perhaps you've experienced it yourself, where you pull an all-nighter to meet a deadline, or perhaps have a newborn keeping you awake. Those nights of inadequate sleep start to accumulate, leaving you feeling perpetually tired and struggling to focus. It's like having a bank account of sleep that's constantly in the negative. Eventually, the exhaustion catches up with you, impacting your mood, cognitive abilities, and overall well-being. Now, imagine a similar scenario, but instead of sleep, it's an accumulation of unprocessed grief. Healthcare workers are constantly immersed in suffering and loss, but often never have any kind of protected time or space to process these heavy experiences, especially when the next patient is waiting. This grief deficit, much like a sleep deficit, can lead to emotional exhaustion and burnout. It's interesting that you bring up the idea of Mm self-preservation. It sounds like you're doing something for self-preservation in the short term. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned you essentially are devastated later. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for long-term self-preservation? Yeah, I don't know if you could do it differently. I don't know if you have another option. So while it might be, you know, a year from now of having to do that all the time where you just stifle down however you're feeling and say, I'll let myself react to this in a space and time where I feel like I can. I've often thought, how does that go into my real world? How does that ability and that skill translate into the world outside of medicine? So not only am I doing that fairly successfully in medicine, which is a little terrifying if you get good at it, 
It is. It's so terrifying because you're saying, what are you good at? When you say you're good at this, you're good at... I'm good at postponing any... Grief. Grief until a later time. But if you translate that to outside of medicine and you're saying, you know, my friend really needs me to be here with them, but like I don't have the emotional bandwidth to be here with them. I'll like be present, but I'll like deal with the grief later. Or I think about it in relationships oftentimes. Can you really dissociate that well from a feeling you don't want to feel? That's a little terrifying if you get very good at it. And I think the good at it, which is a good clarifying question, is being able to compartmentalize and say, I can continue at a moderate level of functioning while not thinking about something that's bothering me or that I probably should and thinking about it later. Can you do that for a day? Like what if you go home and you don't have the time or space to grieve then? Can you wait the next day? Can you wait the next day? Do you need to grieve after two or three days? What about after a month? Or do you feel the need? Can there be like a grief deficit of all the times when your body in a normal way would have cried, would have taken some time to grieve something? And then you say, nope, can't do that. Next admit's here. Or nope, can't do that. I need to go to the next code stroke or what have you. I think personally, I've found it usually starts to pile up, but something will set me off. Generally, it's more of something that's personal. So something in my personal life will happen and then it'll be like, well, I'm crying about this, but then there's something happened a month ago that I'm crying about or a week ago. And then it's, oh, now I'm going to let myself feel bad for that 22-year-old boy. Or now I'm going to think about what happens. Or maybe even, you know, my family's had some health scares. And when you start to put yourself in the position, oh man, I wonder if my parent or family member ends up in a neurocritical care unit with a devastating neurologic injury, if at that time, my moment of seeing my family in that situation will devastate me. It will bring me to my knees because at that point, I will not be engaging as an attending. It will be, I am now the patient receiving this news and I am now in a position where I can have empathy. But when that does happen, I wonder if that will offset, like, can it go back three years? Well, I think about a patient from three years ago where I wasn't relating to the family and I was compartmentalizing and I didn't grieve them. And then all of a sudden I'm in a position where I'm now in this very vulnerable spot and relating more to the patients. And now I'm letting all of this grief just roll in. I'm so curious if that's what is ever going to happen. But I think in general, I do find that I, at that point, whatever tipping point I reach, a lot comes back and catches up to me in general. I wonder what happens to the people who fortunately never reach a point where they're on the patient end or maybe never have a specific catalyst where they're like, this is now when I start to mourn. What happens to those people that never have that aha moment of now I'm allowed to grieve? What happens to those? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Is that just burnout? Probably. I can't imagine containing that much compounded grief over a career like that without having any break from it or any time. But I'd also wonder potentially if they are grieving in their own way. I think everybody grieves in their own way. 
whether it's, oh, I was on a walk and they flitted through my mind once. And that acknowledgement and that reminder of that patient was enough for me to have some peace about it or talking to people or, you know, going home and just instead of necessarily talking about the grief, feeling it. And they say, I just need to sleep. I just, I'm exhausted. I'm physically exhausted. And that's their grief. It's not a cerebral grief. It's a physical grief. And I think that's also very common. And I think people restore that in different ways, whether it's they just need sleep or they do it with physical activity or they're just physically exhausted and and they're like, why am I so tired? And that's their form of griefing. And then when they get past that stage, they don't feel like they need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Just a Just a guess. I don't know. I would be interested to hear if there are people who feel like they've never grieved in their entire career. It would be interesting. And I don't know if grieving is a requirement of human existence. Hmm. Think of a time when you were given news that was difficult to hear. How clearly can you picture it in your mind? Can you remember what the room looked like? What were the words spoken to you? Where were you? Do you remember how you reacted? Did you feel confused, angry, shocked? Those can be overwhelming moments to both experience and recall again. When medical professionals are delivering difficult news, such as sharing a devastating diagnosis or informing someone that their loved one has passed on a regular basis, it is oftentimes a very delicate balance between giving the information in a kind, compassionate way that sits right in your soul while also being able to maintain some compartmentalization or emotional distance that allows you to be able to function for the rest of the day. Because the expectation in medicine is that the patient or family is allowed to fall apart, but you cannot. You must go on with your day. That leads me to the question, how is one supposed to cope with the weight of these conversations over and over again, knowing that the people receiving this kind of news are probably going to cling on to every word you say. And what does it look like to successfully deliver devastating news? I think to me, when I see bad news delivered well, is when it's delivered directly. There's no wiggle room with what they mean for interpretation. And it's delivered with a softness and a grace that maybe doesn't necessarily require a lot of emotional energy from them at that time, but that they say, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. I wish things were different. And that to me is the sign of somebody who can deliver bad news well, is somebody who can make a family feel like this is not routine, even though it is, while also maintaining an air of heaviness, but not being too overly emotionally involved, I think. Because the attendings that I see will, will go into a room, they'll deliver that. The next thing they say when they're walking out of the room, even though I've seen them and I heard them deliver a beautiful way of talking about something horrible, I'll see them leave the room and we'll start looking things up about the next patient. And it's wild. And I've asked them about it and said, how do you do that? And they say, you care enough so that they know you care, but not enough to make it so that you can't care for others and that you can't care for yourself. Because at the end of the day, this is one family, one time, one day, 
one patient in the course of years that you will do this. Now, I can tell you many stories about when it's not been well delivered. I remember my mom went with my grandpa to go get a chest CT because he was having some coughing. And I was pretty young at the time. I think I was yeah, maybe 16, 17. And they went to go get the CT done. And they were, I can't remember why they were in the ER, but they had been told to go to the ER at some point. And they didn't know the results of the imaging. And the doctor comes out to the ER waiting room and says, hey, are you so-and-so? And my mom said, yeah, this is him. And says, you have stage four lung cancer. Like you need to go see an oncologist. And then walked away. And my mom was like, I almost stood up, grabbed him by the back of his neck and said, try that again. But instead, she, you know, was kind of stunned and let him walk away. But her outstanding frustration or immediate response came not only from watching this happen to her dad, who she looks up to and sees as a strong figure and who's very prideful and who was actually a cancer doctor and oncologist. He worked as a general surgeon for several years and then went back to fellowship and did orthopedic surgery and then got involved in bone cancers. So he himself had delivered terrible news thousands and thousands of times in his own career. And this was how he was told of his own mortality. Uh, I just have chills. Yeah. I mean, the diagnosis itself, you wouldn't wish on anybody. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, even if you cannot change the information, you can change how you give it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I remember him being like, what? What just happened? When I think now, in hindsight, about my mother watching her father be told this in front of a room full of people, very callously, devastating, life-altering news, he passed away from it, and witness that, oh my gosh, whew, it makes me so mad, because I have seen it done so well, and I think it, for me, it comes more from my love for my mother, because she still ruminates on it, because she still, since then, has thought about my grandfather's face when he heard this news told this way. And so I think when I think about the way that my family would process this and will process this for the rest of their life, being told this life-altering news, I think about my mom and like she still gets upset thinking about it and she still gets frustrated because of the way she was told news. Not the news. It was never about the news. It was about how disrespected she felt for my grandfather and how she was so powerless. It would have changed her entire memory of that experience and of that news of my grandfather's imminent mortality if the doctor had taken them into a room, said, hey, like, give me a small background about you or what do you know about what's going on? He would have, my grandfather easily would have supplied the information about saying I'm a physician. I suspect I have lung cancer. I have these symptoms. He, he knew. But to be told in that room versus in a quiet room where the doctor could have taken two seconds and been like, I'm really concerned about your CAT scan. It's consistent with lung cancer. You need to see an oncologist. The reflection and the, the lifetime memory that my mother would have had about that experience would be different. And I think seeing how her heart still breaks and reflects on that moment has really altered the way that I deliver news too. Do you feel like there's a part of you that probably sees your grandpa in every patient that you're giving bad news to? Yeah, I think so, probably. I think that I wanted to 
not only protect my grandfather, but protect my mother from being disrespected like that, to me, makes me feel like, how can I enter this situation with grace? And I think that particularly comes out to play in high stress, high acuity, and generally very overwhelming situations, which patients are often in. They don't know any medical vocabulary. They're being told, you know, this, this, that, and the other thing. All they're going to remember is how they feel. They're not going to remember anything. I don't want to discredit families who do remember a lot of the details, but in general, you're just so overwhelmed. So if I can think and say, in that moment... How would I have wanted my grandfather and my mother to feel hearing this bad news? That I think is something I draw from pretty frequently because it, again, won't necessarily be what I say. It will be the environment and the compassion and the care that I communicate to this family based off of how I'm saying something, where I'm saying it, what language and the tone of my voice, Mm -hmm. my body language, like how is that going to be remembered? Thanks for listening to this episode of Medicine Unmasked, healing the healers through anonymous storytelling. I'm your host, Dr. Sonia Pimparker. New episodes come out every two weeks and I can't wait to show you what I have planned for this show. I hit a very, very, very low point, my lowest emotional point I've ever been in my life, thinking and feeling in ways that I never have before. And it was scary to say like, I would rather just think about not being here than getting up and going to work every day. This is going to be a train wreck. Anybody who's ever been in a trauma bay knows that it's almost always, at best, controlled chaos. At worst, total chaos, right? Now you're just going to throw in this like added wrinkle of like, we all know this person. I just felt like I shouldn't be pissed off at him, but I was pissed. I think we were all angry at him for many things and for the disrespect that he had for us until the very end. It was just unbelievable. I am always looking for new guests on this podcast in all areas of healthcare and all specialties. If that sounds like something that you or someone that you know might be interested in, please get in touch with us. You can contact us on our Instagram at Medicine Unmasked or on our website, medicineunmasked.com. Take care. Medicine Unmasked is a production of Unmasked Studios, LLC. The opinions shared on this podcast are solely of those anonymous guests and do not represent the views of all healthcare workers, any specific organization, employer, healthcare system, the host, or Unmasked Studios, LLC.